More than a century ago, a people fled the oppressive conditions of slavery. A great migration north to the promise of freedom and a homestead. What they found? Inhospitable conditions and cold weather. I'm Dave McIver. And I'm Adam Toy. And this is Why. Well, on January 1st, 1863, as America was in the midst of a civil war in which slavery was a major factor in the conflict, then-President Abraham Lincoln issued an executive order called the Emancipation Proclamation. The proclamation declared that All persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are henceforward and forever shall be free. Hey, Dave, uh, Juneteenth, you ever heard of it? Uh, pardon? That's a date? No, 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 Juneteenth. It's an American holiday. Oh, you mean like uh, Columbus Day? Sort of, except it celebrates the end of slavery. You know what? Allie Wilson did a video about this. She's a multimedia producer for original content at Global News. Welcome, Allie. Thank you for having me. Allie, tell us. What is Juneteenth? So Juneteenth is a combination of June and 19th, so Juneteenth. And it marks an important um, official holiday in almost all 50 states in the U.S. And it's what many black Americans would call um, a second Independence Day because it celebrates the abolition of slavery and the beginning of liberation. So this sounds like it's a very important holiday, an important date to commemorate for African Americans. Yeah, because um, like I said, it's basically the beginning of liberation. And it also has quite the history because it also honors uh, black soldiers and um, their um, contribution in the Civil War. What are the celebrations like? So it's actually really cool. So they have a lot of parades. Um, There's a lot of uh, culturally relevant foods that they have. In some places, they have Miss Juneteenth. So, you know, you'll have like contestants that will, you know, whatever um, obstacles, but um, things they have to do Mm -hmm. in order to be voted, you know, Miss Juneteenth for that year. So it's it's a really big, fun celebration that uh, I wish we kind of had over here in Canada as well. What else should we know about Juneteenth? There's two things. One I'll start with is actually the actual date, June 19th. Um, so it's June 19th, 1865. And the reason why people decided to name it Juneteenth, like I said, it's a June 19th, but it also marks the day that Union General Gordon Granger went to Galveston, Texas. So on June 19th, that's when he went to Texas to inform black slaves there that they were free because there were slaves who didn't know about their freedom or the proclamation. So it's believed that these were some of the last slaves to find out that they were free. And so that's why that date is so important um, because and there's a lot of reasons why um, people believe that, you know, there were slaves who found out about their freedom more than a month after the Civil War ended and, you know, more than two and a half years after um, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And, you know, there it goes from, you know, the messenger who was supposed to tell slaves, you know, were, was stopped and killed. Um, there was there are people that say um, slave masters just didn't want to tell the slaves because obviously they wanted them to continue to um, attend to their crops. Um, but June 19th, 1865 is because that's when black slaves in Galveston, Texas, found out about their freedom. Um, And as well, um, I'm just looking at my notes here. Mm -hmm. So 
The Emancipation Proclamation became effective on June 1st, 1863 in the midst of the Civil War, but people don't realize that it came with a price. Um, one of it was that it only applied to states that had seceded, leaving slavery unchanged in border states. And it also came with the provision that um, you had to join the army and help the Union win the war, because if the Union lost the war, then the Emancipation Proclamation would be useless. <laughs> um, so I think those are two really key facts that uh, I would like people to take away. I find that interesting because it speaks to the struggle African-American slaves in Texas continued to have even after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. It took a significant amount of time, more than two years, to find out that they were, in fact, free under the law. Yeah, and it's something that people still talk about today, how a lot of black people still have to fight for their, for their rights and their freedoms. Um, because, like I just mentioned, um, when, we, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed and put into place, it's like, yeah, you're free, but only up to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. You still have to fight um, the battle. And um, as a black person myself, um, I, I, I couldn't imagine, obviously, a, be, being a part of that. But um, just as a black American or a black Canadian, sorry, today, I, I know what it's like to to be offered something or given something, but still having to fight the rest of the way. And it can be very exhausting. So I can only imagine how much more amplified it was for um, black people back then. So what about Juneteenth drew you to produce this piece about it? Um, it's, it's kind of funny. So there's a TV show called Blackish, and they actually did an episode directed towards Juneteenth. Instead of waiting for an apology, why don't we just do something? I mean, if we want to honor the end of slavery, then we should celebrate Juneteenth. Wait, that's what Juneteenth is. We don't celebrate the end of slavery, but you wake us up early on Cyber Monday. And this was news to me because I've never heard about anything like this at all. Mm. And I know I'm in Canada, so it's not as well known over here, but it really sparked my interest because a lot of the times when we um, celebrate Black History Month, we celebrate Rosa Parks, um, Martin Luther King, um, which are all very important people, um, but we don't hear about other things within Black history. And the freedom was short-lived because from 1865 to 1876 was a relatively good time for African Americans in the South. It uh, is known as a period of reconstruction, but with the election in 1876, that began the downward spiral that led to the the formal legislation that led to Jim Crow laws. That's David Est, a professor in the Department of Social Work at the University of Calgary and co-creator of the documentary We Are the Roots. David, you've got a background in history and in the history of African-Americans. What is the history of African-Americans coming to Canada after the Emancipation Proclamation and in the era of Jim Crow laws coming into place? There are a couple of migrations that I'm aware of. Um, The first one took place starting uh, in 1880s when the Canadian National Railroad and Canadian Pacific uh, had their headquarters in Montreal and they basically followed the American railroad company called Pullman. And what I mean by that is that they wanted cheap labor. Mm. And so they f- felt that the best source of cheap labor would be black men to work as, as porters. And so they recruited men, black men from southern Ontario, 
uh, Nova Scotia, but they also had recruiting campaigns uh, in the United States in major cities such as Boston, Philadelphia, New York, and and the recruiters also went to the southern states and tried to recruit men, African American men from the historically black colleges and universities. Mm. And then they expanded their recruitment to uh, the West Indies, places like Antigua, Barbados, etc. And I know that because my great uncle was recruited in 1912, and, wow. and he ended up working briefly on the railroad. And when my grandfather came to Canada in 1928, that was the best job that black men could get in Canada, working on the railroad. And what I mean by best is it was well paid, there was some sense of security, but the working conditions were not great. Mm -hmm. The second migration uh, that formed the foundation of our documentary started in 1905 when uh, primarily from Oklahoma, a group of African Americans decided to migrate to Canada because when Oklahoma became a state, it became a state where they adopted strong Jim Crow laws and the fortunes of the African-Americans deteriorated because they lost the right to vote. Okay, let's take a moment to define Jim Crow laws. They're a set of laws that enforced racial segregation in the United States. They told newly freed slaves where they could live, what kind of jobs they could get, what their pay was, and what public spaces they could use. The legal system was also stacked against African-Americans. And these laws stayed in place until 1965. Okay, end side note, let's get back to David Est. And there was an increase in violence, and in particular, uh, lynching uh, against African Americans. And so they decided that they needed to get out because things were going to get worse instead of getting better for them. We'll be right back. And so this, this second wave that, you, that you're speaking of and that you covered in that documentary, they largely came to the prairies. Do I understand that correctly? Yes. Um, it was probably just a straight line. <laughs> straight line uh, north, yeah. <laughs> straight line north uh, because there was a perception that, that life would be much better in Canada and that these individuals would have uh, uh, better opportunities and most importantly wouldn't be subjected to the strong forms of racism and discrimination that they encountered once Oklahoma became a state. Is that what they found when they got there, what they were looking for? I, I think they were, were surprised, uh, surprised in terms of the terrain. Uh, and of course, not surprisingly, <laughs> uh, I remember one person that we interviewed talked about the volume of snow, and apparently when they uh, and they had never seen as much snow, and in terms of how they were received, uh, two different types of reception. So for those individuals who um, went to the smaller rural communities, such as Wildwood, uh, Breton. My people settled in Wildwood area, Jenkins. That's about 60 miles west of Edmonton. People settled in Breton, Alberta, which is southern Alberta. People settled in Mainstone, Saskatchewan on the border, like Lloyd Minister, and um, up in um, Barhead area, Camp C. And people settled up in Amber Valley area, uh, Athabasca area. And even there were some people in Gibbons that I just learned that area. So there are different settlements around Alberta. They didn't experience, and this was surprised us, they didn't experience the type of racism that their colleagues uh, encountered when they settled in Edmonton and Calgary. And 
So I was puzzled about that, but what made the difference was that uh, working in the rural community, living in the rural communities, they were farmers. And when it came time to harvest, well, the white farmers, a lot of them were, were immigrants from the Ukraine, Germany. So they needed each other to help harvest the land. So the relationships were relatively positive. And for virtually everyone that we interviewed who lived in the smaller communities, they talked about that they didn't experience racism, that their homes were open to everybody in the, in the community, and vice versa. But it was quite different, especially in the city of Edmonton, where, not surprisingly, because even today, the majority of people of African descent in this country live in the urban centers, but uh, job opportunities were limited, um, and they faced discrimination in public places such as the theaters and, and, and restaurants. So it was a very, very different type of reception. What role did these African-American homesteaders play in the early years of Alberta and Saskatchewan as provinces? So Alberta and Saskatchewan became provinces in 1905, and that was the beginning of the, the, the migration of about 1,500 over a 10-year period or less. So I think they were quite instrumental in, in uh, helping the province uh, solidify itself as a province, but also contributing because at that time, the primary uh, industry in Alberta was was farming, etc. Mm-hmm. So they were, uh, although the numbers were small, they were quite, uh, they were quite strong in terms of contributing to uh, Alberta's economy. Uh, and uh, once again, they were probably, it was, a, it was a largest group of black people who had arrived in in Alberta to that at that time? So, I think they played uh, an important role in the province uh, foundation. But as they as the community settled, they also took on an activist role in terms of clamoring for recognition, clamoring for the end of racism and discrimination. And I know in Edmonton there were a couple of organizations that this that the African community in Edmonton formed to begin to advocate for better circumstances for their members of their community. Spirituality in the African American community seems to be a cornerstone. What can you tell us about how those pioneers practiced their spirituality and what role that played in them being able to survive in the Canadian and Alberta wilds? The reason I'm smiling is that that, that that's I've done some work in that and some research in that. So, without a doubt, uh, spirituality and religion were essential to. Uh, these African-Americans who settled in Edmonton and around the rural area. So when they arrived, especially in the urban centers, they attempted to go to white churches, but uh, they weren't well-received. And if they got into the churches, they were placed in the back of the church in what they called the in pews. Mm. Uh, and the other thing that uh, that they didn't like is that uh, being African-Americans, the majority of them were heavily involved in the operation of the black churches in the United States and where they li- uh, lived. Mm-hmm. And so when it came to Edmonton and Canada, and this was consistent, whether it be Edmonton, Montreal, Nova Scotia, Ontario, mm-hmm. 
Uh, so they clamored to have a greater involvement in the churches, but that wasn't afforded to them, so they formed their own churches. And in Edmonton, um, the church was founded, it was a Shiloh Baptist church, was founded in about 1910 by the African Americans. And in every African American community in Canada, the church became uh, the pillar of strength. Mm. But, but what I mean by that, so there was a strong need to practice their spirituality. But the churches became the dominant institution in these communities and served as the hub of the community in terms of leadership opportunities uh, uh, for both men and women. And it was important for the women because with their male partners working the railroads, the women had to run, they ran the church and very instrumental. Mm-hmm. And the church was also a place where they... Um, they provided a range of educational, social, recreational activities, not only for the adults, but there's a strong emphasis in, in providing these types of program services for young people. Uh, and the place where a lot of the spirituality for the young people was a Sunday school. And each of these churches had a very, very strong Sunday school component. We talk about the church as being a pillar of strength in these African-American communities in Canada. And the Shiloh Baptist Church uh, went through a a series of different changes in different locations and it still exists today in Edmonton. Although the majority of the congregation are black, I would would describe it as a multicultural church. Very vibrant and, uh, and, you know, a big part of the spirituality was, was the gospel uh, gospel choirs, and they have a fantastic gospel choir today. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned music because I, and maybe I should have known, but I didn't realize that Edmonton's Yardbird Suite was also established in large part by some African-American musicians. And Edmonton, the, the Shiloh Church there, there's a great number of contributions. But what would you say is the greatest contribution or the greatest legacy that came from those pioneers? The resiliency in terms of, of uh, getting used to <laughs> living in, in, in places such as Edmonton, Calgary with the cold winters. Um, but also the resiliency in, in terms of... Uh, uh, when they got here, that they weren't going to go back uh, to the United States, and they were determined to 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 do their best to make uh, to have a positive existence in um, in Canada. And uh, so it's resiliency; it's their practice of mutual aid in terms of self help, uh, as we talked uh, earlier, in terms of helping each other, and also trying to share. Uh, who they are, their culture, with the dominant society over a period of time. So what should Canadians do with this history? Well, (laughs) I'll I'll be very blunt. Um, Most Canadians uh, aren't aware of the history, and uh, including... Probably significant numbers of people of African descent living in this country. So the first thing 
is that people need to become aware. And I think uh, black history helps uh, to a certain extent because it's an opportunity uh, for individuals to go to events, uh, both educational events, where people begin to understand the long-standing history of people of African descent in this country. Because I think there's a myth that black people have been here primarily since the uh, change in the Immigration Act that came into full play in 1970 when we saw large numbers of people coming from the Caribbean. However, I tell folks that people of African descent were here long before the British. Uh, in fact, there, we have archival uh, documentation that the first black person arrived in Canada in 1604, and then there was a young African male who came with Samuel uh, de Champlain in 1608. So we've been here for over <laughs> 400 years. Wow. Uh, uh, but people aren't aware of the history, and when they find out, they're, they're pretty shocked. Uh, and I would say the history is both positive and negative because people of Afghanistan have made numerous positive contributions to Canadian society uh, from the time they arrived. Dave, you mentioned earlier that you were surprised to learn about the history in the prairies of African-American pioneers coming to Homestead a century ago. I was. My only real exposure to the history of slavery growing up was watching the 1977 miniseries Roots. And that series revolves around what happened in the United States. I've always heard that Canada was kind of a safe haven for African-Americans fleeing the U.S. And I had no idea that this was the type of reception they received in Canada and how it varied so much in rural and urban areas. If you'd like to learn more about the African-American pioneers that moved to the Canadian prairies, we encourage you to watch David's documentary, We Are the Roots. You can check that out online at baileyandsoda.com. This Is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, why at globalnews.ca, and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, give us a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. See you next week.